Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If you've ever traveled west through South Dakota, traveled on Interstate 90, you know that there's a river that runs through our state and divides it into two roughly equal parts. And when you approach that river in Chamberlain and you cross it, the landscape changes. Suddenly you're not in the upper Midwest anymore. You feel like you've entered into the West. And it's a pretty dramatic shift. The book of Joshua has a similar kind of shift that takes place within it. It starts one way with a lot of narrative and battles, and then roughly in the middle it shifts gears. A pastor at our presbytery last week was telling the story of reading through the Bible with his two young sons and described their disappointments with the book of Joshua that started off so well with so much bloodshed and so much killing, only to devolve into this tedious business of dividing up the promised land, which they didn't find very interesting. We're approaching the river. We're approaching that division. And so as you see our survey of Joshua move forward, it's also going to change a little bit in the way that we approach the text. So you know we're looking at the book of Joshua, and we're looking specifically at the the point of view of what we as the church have to learn from the experience of the people of God in the book of Joshua. In history, the people of God are passing into the promised land. And we, as the church, are a people of God who look forward to a land of promise as well. And so there are lessons here for us. So as we move forward through the book, we're going to be compressing time We're going to be uh, looking at chapters at a time or sometimes zooming in on a single significant verse as we're doing here this morning. Last time, we looked at the aftermath of the defeat of the armies that united against Israel. Those armies united, they attacked Gibeon, but Joshua's army got there and smashed them. The kings of that army were hunted down. They were captured, and as we saw last time, they were executed. Following this, if you keep reading in chapter 10 and into chapter 11, you see the army of Israel consolidating those gains. And when I say consolidating those gains, I mean sweeping through the rest of the land and and putting everybody to the sword. Over and over again, we get this chronicle. People rise up against Joshua, and Joshua cuts them down. They rise up on the left, he cuts them down on the left. They rise up on the right, he cuts them down on the right. In the north, he cuts them down. In the south, he cuts them down. He cuts them all down, killing after killing after killing, victory after victory, judgment after judgment, depending on which side of the line you're standing on. And then we come to this text in chapter 11, verse 20, which takes a sort of retrospective look at what's happening and and draws back a curtain for us into the events that we've been witnessing. So after all of these victories, after all of these terrible battles, we read these words. 
For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Why didn't the Canaanites give up? After so many defeats, they must have realized that the battle was pointless, but they kept fighting because according to our text in Joshua 11.20, their hearts were hardened by God. This isn't an easy thing to hear. Most of us, most uh, Christians today of the evangelical persuasion would agree that salvation is God's work alone up to a point. But if you push that too far, you could run into trouble. If you start saying that even our faith is God's doing, then people get nervous. Then you break out a verse like Joshua eleven twenty, where God is actually hardening people's hearts. Those are fighting words. But listen, there's a reason Scripture tells us this. There's a reason that God draws back the curtain on this mystery. There's something that we're meant to know in this passage. Otherwise, the Bible would skip over this the way that we sometimes wish it would. But we're not going to skip over it this morning. We're not going to skip ahead in the narrative. We're going to pause here for a moment and ask some important questions about this passage. Why were their hearts hardened? Why were their hearts hardened? What does it mean to say that their hearts were hardened by God? And how should this affect our own hearts? Those three questions, why were their hearts hardened? What does it mean that their hearts were hardened by God? And how should this affect our own hearts? Now, why were their hearts hardened? Our text says their hearts were hardened because they were devoted to destruction. This is an odd turn of phrase in modern English, so it deserves some attention. In ordinary use, devotion is a word that expresses commitment or passion. You may be devoted to your family, devoted to your job, devoted to your favorite team. So when we hear a phrase like devoted to destruction, it sounds like we're saying these people really had a passion for destruction. I mean, some of us like destroying things, but they love destroying things. They are devoted to destruction. But the Bible's using the phrase devoted to destruction differently in a different sense here. To be devoted to destruction here is to be set aside for it. To be marked out for it, handed over for destruction. This will sound strange, but we might even say to be sanctified for destruction. Because that's what the word sanctified means. To be set aside, to be set apart. So what we're being told then is that the hearts of the Amorites were hardened because they had been set apart for destruction. They had been sentenced by God to death, and the battlefields of Canaan were where that sentence was being carried out. This concept of things or people being devoted to destruction isn't new to us. 
In the book of Joshua, we've run into it many times already. In Joshua 2, verse 10, for example, we hear these words on the lips of Rahab, who told the spies that everyone in Canaan had heard of the way Israel defeated the kings on the far side of the Jordan, Og and Sion. And she says, whom you devoted to destruction. You devoted those kings to destruction. Later in chapter 6, verse 18, Joshua commanded the people on the eve of Jericho's fall to, quote, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. And it was the failure to keep that command that led to their defeat at Ai. In Joshua 10, if you read through that passage, you find this phrase coming up over and over again. Devoted to destruction is used almost as a synonym for putting people to death. He devoted to destruction every person in it, verse 28 says. They struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it, reads verse 39. He left none remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. That's chapter 10, verse 40. Now, the concept of being devoted to destruction goes back earlier than the book of Joshua. It appears in the law given in Exodus chapter 22, verse 20. This is what Exodus says. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. So being devoted to destruction is a penalty for idolatry. And that connection is reiterated in Deuteronomy chapter 7. You turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 25 and 26, and read these words. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. So the people of Israel are warned, when you conquer the promised land, do not partake of the things devoted to destruction. Otherwise, you will become devoted to destruction yourself. You will be tainted by the same idolatry that they practice, the same idolatry that that put the death sentence on them will taint you. That's exactly what happened to Achan and his family in chapter 7. We saw that sentence, that terrible sentence, carried out on them. The danger of being corrupted if you associate with things devoted to destruction, is emphasized later on in Deuteronomy chapter 20 in instructions that Moses gives to the people. As he anticipates their entering into the promised land, he's giving them uh, teaching on what they should do when they get there. And he says in, in verse 16 of chapter 20 of Deuteronomy, in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, 
that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. If you do not devote them to destruction, complete destruction, Moses says, then they will teach you their ways, and you will follow after their gods. Idolatry is the reason why things or people are devoted to destruction. And the extreme penalty indicates how severe the offense of idolatry is. If you do not root it out, Moses says, you will become its slave. That's how powerful the lure of these things are. Although they are devoted to destruction, they call out to us. If you understand this link between idolatry and being devoted to destruction, then it helps you see a point that we've made before, that the destruction is a form of divine justice. We know from Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. In other words, death is the just penalty for sin. Romans also tells us quite a bit about the nature of sin, what sin is like where it originates in the human heart. It's corrupting effect on every part of our nature. And this is helpful because sin is such a big topic. It can be difficult to get a handle on it. There are these long lists of things that the Bible condemns as sin. And sometimes it helps to know what they all have in common, what they all share in. Romans tells us that too, right at the beginning in chapter 1 when it talks about the wrath of God being revealed against all unrighteousness. When Paul sums up the nature of sin, he says that sinners exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. In other words, sin is about idolatry. Sin is about false worship. He sums up all human sin as a kind of idolatry. Instead of serving the creator as we should, the sinner worships and serves the creature instead. All our sin ultimately is an act of idolatry, a desire aimed at things that we ought not to desire. And God, according to Romans 1.32, has passed a sentence against idolatry, a sentence which sinners laugh to scorn Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, Paul writes, they do not, uh, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That attitude of approval helps explain something. We like the idea of divine justice as long as that justice or judgment falls on the right people. In Dante's Inferno, For example, Dante has no trouble sending people to hell as long as he doesn't like them. As long as he doesn't like them, he puts them in hell. Popes, popes, heads of his church that he doesn't like, he sends to hell and encounters them and gleefully submits them to torment. But not Virgil. Not Virgil. Even though Virgil was a pagan, even though he didn't believe in Christ, Virgil doesn't receive the same punishment because Virgil is Dante's favorite poet. So he gets to be a righteous pagan. He gets a pass on judgment because Dante likes him. 
and can't imagine that a loving God would send Virgil to judgment. Of course, he couldn't do such a thing. And I would say that on the whole, we tend to be more permissive, not less, than Dante. Uh, Hitler, Stalin, sure, you can condemn them. They can go to hell. That annoying person on Facebook? Probably, probably. But nobody else. Nobody else. Everybody else gets a pass. Even those of us who agree in theory that the wages of sin is death have a hard time going along with this in practice. Theologically, we concede that death is the result of sin, but if anyone actually dies, we think God has a lot to answer for. God's got some tough questions to answer. We might not say it out loud, but if anybody else does, it resonates. It resonates with us. Because it's one thing to believe in the abstract that sin is so evil that it merits destruction, and quite another to feel that way about your own sin or about the sin of the people that you love. And so sometimes we have to be reminded that in God's eyes, if you're devoted to idols, you're devoted to destruction. So what does it mean that their hearts were hardened? They were hardened. There are really two questions here, and the second one is the hard one. The first one is easy. What does it mean to have a hardened heart? That's simple. Where a soft heart would be pliable and changeable, a hardened heart is set and determined. It's stubborn. Where a soft heart might hear a warning and listen, repent, change direction, a hardened heart gets the warning and digs in deeper, is confirmed. But the second, more challenging question is this. What does it mean to say that God hardened their hearts? Because here's what it sounds like. It sounds like they aren't responsible for their actions. Because they didn't choose them, God did. It sounds like the Bible is saying that God warned them not to keep paddling down the river or they would paddle right over the edge, but then he tied them down to the deck of the boat so they couldn't do anything about it and were destroyed. In other words, it doesn't sound fair. And fairness is a big thing to us. It's the greatest of the American virtues. There's some social science that says that fairness is the one value that we all still have in common, whether you are progressive or conservative or a libertarian. The thing we all care about is that people be treated fairly. Now, the Bible says all sorts of mysterious and challenging things about God, and an American is willing to listen. But if there's one thing we're not prepared to hear, it's that God isn't fair. That God isn't fair. So what does it mean to say that God hardened their hearts? Again, this isn't a new concept in Scripture, and it wouldn't have been new to the people of Joshua. The people who are conquering Canaan in Joshua 11, they're already familiar with the idea because their ancestors were delivered from Egypt where God had famously hardened Pharaoh's heart. In Exodus 11, Moses warns Pharaoh about a final plague that will sweep through the land and kill the firstborn of every household. Now, the whole point of these plagues is to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. 
And so far, every plague that has been promised has actually been delivered. So you would think that maybe this final plague would convince Pharaoh. He's seen that everyone comes to pass, every threat is carried out, and now a terrible threat is made. Maybe this will be the tipping point. This will be the one that finally gets Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. But no, no, that's not how it works. Here's what we read in Exodus 11, verses 9 and 10. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So God tells Moses in advance that Pharaoh is not going to listen, and then he tells him why he's not going to listen. He's not going to listen so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. That's not Pharaoh's motivation. God's not explaining to you the psychology of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not saying to himself, oh, I'd really like to give in at this point, but if I do, uh, there's not going to be a Passover and God's glory and his wonders won't be multiplied, so I guess I just need to double down and resist at this point. That's not what's going on in the mind of Pharaoh. God is speaking not of Pharaoh's motivation, but of his own, of his own. This is going to happen in history, and God gives the reason for it, and the reason is in the mind of God. Well, how does God know what Pharaoh will do? We might tell ourselves God knows everything. Maybe uh, God looked down the corridors of time. He foresaw what Pharaoh would do, that he wouldn't listen, and then he reported back to Moses what he had seen. Only the scripture gives us a simpler explanation than that. which says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So on the one hand, the prophet of God is warning this man. And on the other, God is hardening him so that he does not heed the warning. Something deep is being touched on here. Something deep is being hinted at in these actions. In the book of Romans, Paul looks back at this moment and reflects on this moment in chapter 9. If you turn to Romans chapter 9, as Paul addresses the mysteries of God's working and salvation, you come across these words where he uses Pharaoh as an example. This is Romans chapter 9. We'll start reading in verse 14 and read through verse 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So there are two principles in Paul's words there. First, it's not the human will. It's not human efforts, ultimately, that God's mercy rests on. 
that his compassion depends upon, but rather it is God himself, ultimately, that God's mercy relies on. Secondly, God has mercy on whomever he wills freely, and he hardens whomever he wills freely. Now, when Paul goes on in this chapter to entertain this hypothetical objection, if God always gets his way, if God shows mercy where he wants to, if he hardens whoever he wants, then how can he still find fault? Paul essentially says, you're in no position to judge the works of God. You're the creature, he's the creator. Great question, but there is nowhere you can stand to look over the shoulder of God and judge whether or not what he does is good and right. At the same time, the Bible does qualify this teaching. What Paul says to us in Romans 9 about God's mercy and judgment is not the only thing that the Bible tells us. There's more for us to know about mercy and justice. And this is where the third chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith is really good. Chapter 3, very first paragraph. If you know nothing else in the confession, I would suggest looking this up because that paragraph essentially not only states the doctrine of God's power and sovereignty, but also gives some important biblical uh, qualifiers. You might think of these as fences so that we don't misunderstand what we're being told here. So the confession helps us not to miss the larger point, but also not to steamroll over the qualifiers that Scripture gives. So let me read you the confession. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. That's the main point. But listen to the qualifications. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So the big point that Paul is making is that God ordains what comes to pass. He does it from all eternity. He does it based on his own wisdom, not yours. He does it freely. He's not compelled to do, go one way or the other based on external considerations. This knocks down any human attempt to limit God, to box him in, to make him work according to our own assumptions about how he ought to be. He's the creator, you are the creature. And yet, and yet, God does tell us in Scripture things about the way that he acts, and we can't ignore those qualifiers either. So we've got to get the main point but we also have to get the qualifications as well. God ordains what happens, but he's not the author of sin. That means you can't blame God for evil. God ordains what happens, but he doesn't do violence to the will of his creatures. It's important to see these words in a Reformed confession because a lot of critics are under the impression that Calvinists believe that God does do violence to the will of his creatures. In fact, that God delights in doing violence to the will of his creatures, as there's nothing he loves more than to bend them to his will. In fact, a friend of mine once explained it this way. He said, Calvinists wake up wanting to wear the blue shirt, but then God compels them to wear the red shirt instead and bends them to his will. So I quoted him 
this passage from the Westminster Confession, that God ordains what comes to pass, but he doesn't do violence to the will of his creatures. And he said to me, that's not what Calvinists believe. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if it is in writing in the greatest of all the Reformed confessions of faith, maybe it is what Calvinists believe. God does no violence to the will of his creatures. This is a particularly relevant point for us because hearing that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hardened the hearts of the Amorites, certainly sounds like some violence was done to the will. That's what makes this such a challenging passage. It raises our American fairness antennae. God can't hold people accountable if he hardened their hearts because he stepped over the line. He violated their free will. How can they be responsible? But consider this. Hardening, in some cases, can be a good thing if you're already in the right shape. If we fashion a cup out of clay and we harden it in the fire, we haven't forced it to be a cup against its will. We've just made it a better cup. I admit that that would be a better analogy if Paul didn't talk about God as the one who shapes the cup. So you might look at Romans 9 and say, well, if God shaped me into a bad cup and then he hardened me into a bad cup, how can I possibly be held responsible for being what Paul calls a vessel of wrath, prepared for destruction. And that's where the last part of the confession comes in, where it says this, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. In other words, the Bible's view of human action is complex and layered. God doesn't erase our liberty to get his way. He somehow works through that liberty, through that freedom. When we acknowledge God as the highest cause, we don't steamroll over all of the secondary causes. Now, how can this be? How can I be the cause of something that was ordained before the foundation of the world? How can God ordain something that I freely chose to do? Now, here, right here, is where Paul draws the line. This is where he draws the line, and he says, you cannot go farther because you're only a creature. But everything that led us up to this point is revealed in Scripture. Those are questions that are answered. A lot of times we draw the line differently. We take things that Scripture has revealed, and we act as if they're unknowable and unfathomable. But scripture brings us to this question. It brings us to this point by saying that God ordains whatever comes to pass, but in such a way that that our freedom remains real, that we do choose and cause the things that we do and are therefore responsible for them. We're shown these things in scripture and we're shown for a reason. There's a value in knowing that God operates on this invisible level, even if knowing it provokes all sorts of unanswerable questions. So what is the value? How does knowing that it was the Lord's doing affect our own hearts? It's a good question, and it certainly doesn't affect each of us the same way, in part due to the fact that a lot of times we come to this point 
through the course of some sort of polemic or theological debate. You encounter these things during the course of an argument and where you started kind of uh, determines where you want to dig in. Come to a verse like Joshua 11:20, and we spend all of our time arguing whether or not it's really true that God hardens hearts, whether that's really compatible with what we read earlier about God being love, rather than accepting what we're told in Joshua 11:20 and asking ourselves, What is the value of knowing such things? Why would God want to tell us such things? Here's one thing we can be certain of. The author of Joshua didn't mention this to throw some sparks into a philosophical debate. He wasn't trying to provide ammunition for those of us who like to argue over free will and determinism. Instead, he's shedding some light on an aspect of human history that's usually hidden from our eyes. Israel's conquest of Canaan was a blessing to them, but a curse to the Amorites. It was a reward for the people of God and a judgment on the idolaters. And God hardened the hearts of the idolaters so that they would come at Israel with their swords drawn and be cut down. Paul describes in Romans 1.24 the way that God gives sinners over to their sin. And that's what he's doing here. He's giving them up to their idolatry and using Joshua to execute judgment upon them. Now, whenever a curtain is drawn back on a great mystery, we should proceed with caution. All of the Reformed confessions that that touch on this also come with disclaimers. They come with warnings about how to use this information. The danger is that Scripture gives us a glimpse of what is happening in the spiritual world, and we assume that we know more than we do. We start building elaborate systems on those glimpses and forget that we know less than we think we know about the hidden ways of God. There's another danger, too. If we don't like the direction those glimpses point us in, we treat them as if they're more inscrutable than they actually are. We start treating things the Bible reveals as if the Bible hasn't revealed them at all. Our duty, then, is to stop when Scripture stops, but not to stop short of Scripture. In other words, when we read that God hardened their hearts, we should not rush past this and say, there's nothing to see here. We should pause to consider the implications as we have done. We should situate those implications within the larger framework of Scripture, which we've also tried to do as well. But what's the benefit of this knowledge? What does it profit us to know that it was the Lord's doing? To answer this, we have to look at the difference that the knowledge makes in the context of Joshua 11. As I said earlier, we read of Joshua moving from victory to victory, from destruction to destruction. What verse 20 tells us is how completely these victories are the work of God. During the conquest, we've seen God working, God winning battles for Israel, fighting them both directly and indirectly, working through means and occasionally apart from means as well. And now we see even more. 
God is at work on the other side of the battle lines as well. God isn't just at work in the heart of Israel. God is at work in the heart of his enemies, too. God rules over every square inch of the field. Even in the fog of war, even in the hearts of his enemies, God rules. When you remember that this destruction is an act of divine justice, you see that God is the judge of all things. And he is in absolute control of the administration of judgment, which means that despite all appearances to the contrary, in the world that we live in, there will be justice. God's justice will be carried out. Justice is inescapable. When you remember that Joshua is a type of Christ, they share a name, and in the Acts of Joshua, we see the work of Christ prefigured You see that Christ's victory, too, is one over which God exercises absolute sovereignty, absolute control. The path of redemption that seemed so fraught, so uncertain, is the most certain thing in human history. This, I think, is the real benefit of knowing that it was the Lord's doing. We see how completely justice is a work of God's hand. We can admit to ourselves just how completely mercy is, too. The terrible, swift sort of justice fills us with awe. But then the strong arm of God's salvation fills us with wonder. As I said at the beginning, we all agree that salvation is God's work alone up to a point. You can't earn your salvation? Agreed. You deserve the same penalty for your sin that the Canaanites received for theirs? Agreed. Your only hope is to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ? Agreed. And even that repentance and faith is not your own work, but is the work of the Holy Spirit in you? Uh, Hold on a second. Then it gets uncomfortable. That's where we start drawing lines. God does all the work except for this. God does everything necessary for salvation on his side of the line, and all that's left for us to do is what remains on our side of the line. That's what we tell ourselves when we imagine God seated at the table across from us, reaching out his hand, just waiting for us to seal the deal by shaking it. But scripture reveals something different. A verse like Joshua 11.20 comes along and a curtain is drawn back and we see that the God of Israel is not just the God of Israel. He is the God of all humanity. He is the maker of all things. He is the God of history and of time, which means that he rules and reigns above them too. He is not subject to them. He's the God of human hearts, the God of all mystery, to whom all things are known. Is a God of justice and mercy. The reality of judgment shines a light on the reality of mercy. What do we do with this knowledge? Well, first, we'd probably better ask what we should not do with this knowledge. First of all, do not flatten out the mystery. God has given us a glimpse of a hidden reality, but he hasn't shown us the whole picture. He hasn't revealed everything to us. So don't be one of those Christians who confuses God's judgments with your judgments and is too quick to interpret the events all around you as judgments from God and explain who's in the wrong and who's in the right. 
If anything, this knowledge should humble you. It should remind you that there is more going going on in the world around you than you have eyes to see. More importantly, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. It may seem paradoxical at the end of a sermon about God hardening people's hearts to say to you, do not harden your heart. But if that seems paradoxical or inconsistent to you, I'm okay with that because Scripture says it. Scripture says, do not harden your heart. In Psalm 95, in a passage that's later quoted in Hebrews 3, we're we're told God appeals to us. Do not harden your heart the way Israel did in the wilderness. Do not give your heart over to other gods. Do not devote yourself to idols. Instead, turn your heart towards Jesus Christ. And do trust that Christ is at work. Even when you don't see him. Even when the cause of Christ seems like a lost cause, you can have confidence that Jesus will prevail. And you can trust that the same God who has the power to harden hearts has the power to melt them too. He is so powerful that his justice is inescapable. But that same power means that his mercy triumphs over every obstacle. We don't deserve that mercy, but in Christ, we get it anyway. We are made worthy to receive honor and power and glory because something deeper moves in the fabric of history, in the human story, something that we barely dream of, but in Scripture, occasionally, we glimpse it. It's the hand of God. And it leaves us with nothing to do but to give God the glory It leaves us with nothing to say, but it is the Lord's doing. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.